It's kind of a long story, but I think all of the elements need to be in place to understand the story. So in 2011, I saw a photograph on the internet of rainbow-colored corn. It actually broke the internet before the Kardashians. People didn't think it was real. The photo was altered or something like that, but it really was uh, a corn that a man in Oklahoma, he was Cherokee, grew that corn and he had been talking about it for many years that it was the corn of a prophecy of a time of change when it arrived. So I had it in my head, I need to meet that man. This is the land you're on, acknowledging the Haudenosaunee, interviews and conversations with indigenous community members and allies, providing the context and perspective needed to understand the complicated history of the land you're on. I am Angela Ferguson. I am Onondaga Eel Clan. I love to cook and I love to grow my own food. Angela Ferguson is the seed keeper for the Onondaga Nation and the founder of the Onondaga Farm Crew. The farm is responsible for all aspects of food sovereignty within the nation, from planting, harvesting, and seed preservation to beekeeping, butchering, and meal prep for elders. So 2015 is when I started the Onondaga Nation Farm as a collective project for the community, and the council gave me the approval to do that. So I had met some fellow indigenous corn growers and we got together starting up an indigenous corn growers collective of people. And our goal was to bridge the gap between, that's missing between our young people and the elders. Let's try to gather all that knowledge from them to get it to the young people before we lose them. My name's Ethan Tayo. I am from Akazase on the US side. I am Wolf Clan. Uh, Mohawk, and I've been at SU for, gosh, seven years now. Angela Ferguson is such a phenomenal person. I am so happy that I've gotten to meet her and we continue to hang out. She works for the Yandaga Nation Farm and is really kind of pushing a lot of initiatives to revitalize our foods and to revitalize our seeds and to protect them because that, for a lot of people, that's the only Thing that we have in our culture left besides our language. And the seeds go far on beyond our culture. It's also life. It's, it's species and organisms and beings that are slowly being killed off and the world doesn't really care. And I think that the work that she's doing is incredible and groundbreaking. Um, and she works so hard and she's just one individual. Braiding the Sacred is a network of indigenous growers engaged in preserving traditional varieties of corn, hosting gatherings to connect leaders and seed keepers, emphasizing the role traditional foods play in the health of traditional communities. The reason we came up with that name of our Corn Growers Collective is because We've all gotten into this each man for himself mentality. You know, colonialism has taught everybody to strive to be the best one to do for yourself, to be independent. And as human beings, we're social. It doesn't matter what race you come from, you need human companionship at one point or another in order for you to be truly, truly happy. You come from a mother, so it starts from there, you know, so you can't ever deny that connection to another human being. And braiding the sacred is hoping to braid people back to the 
agriculture, the people, the ceremony, and the, the ground, the earth, that all the elements around you that are required in order for plants to be successful, so are humans, you know? You need to have wind in your hair. You need to swim and get in water. You need to put your feet in the sand. You know, there's so many things that plants need that we need too. So we thought if we can braid all these communities back together, there's even indigenous communities that struggle to have trust amongst each other, you know? So we're trying to build back those levels of trust and it's been working because a lot of people are looking at food as a commodity and we're trying to you know, bring the thinking back to that it's a relative, it's, it's sacred to us. In 2011, I saw a photograph on the internet of rainbow-colored corn, and no one believed it actually broke the internet. This is before the Kardashians. But it really was a corn that a man in Oklahoma, he was Cherokee, he grew that corn and he had been talking about it for many years, that it was the corn of a prophecy of a time of change when it arrived. So I had it in my head, I need to meet that man. And I'm gonna meet him someday, I'm gonna manifest that, you know? So 2015 is when I started the Onondaga Nation Farm as a collective project for the community and the council gave me the approval to do that. We felt there was some kind of urgency, so Started out as a small group of people, and through that group, one corn grower to another, we traveled to many nations all over Turtle Island. It led us to Oklahoma, and that's where the man that grew the rainbow corn, his name was Carl Barnes. He was from there. He passed away, but I didn't know that at the time. And he had an apprentice when he was alive who he worked with, a Cheyenne corn farmer. So when he passed, his family uh, said, we don't know what to do with all his seeds, you know. He spent 50 years or more of his life just dedicated to keeping the corn alive. He said he spoke its language. He could communicate with it. And we're going to give it to you. So they gave it to that man. There was thousands and thousands of varieties. And he was overwhelmed, and he felt like, I can't do this. I don't know how he did it. So... Long story short, he invited us down to Oklahoma to come see if we were interested in growing any of the varieties or helping out in some way. So long story short, he invited us down to Oklahoma to come see if we were um, interested in growing any of the varieties or helping out in some way. So we traveled down there and we all met up from all different, all different places in the country. We all went over there and in the end, every time he showed me a jar, I kept picking it up and I kept going, oh, I just love this one. Oh, look at this one. Oh, and you know, I was opening them all. He's like, are you gonna do that with every jar? And they were like, yes, she will. <laughs> He's like, we don't have time for that. There's thousands of jars here. <laughs> but I was just like, it was so emotional and overwhelming because you could feel all this ancestral energy of all these people that carried these seeds through displacements through colonialism, wartime. Some of them are completely extinct. There are no more of those people. And it was really powerful, you know, to think instead of eating them, people that were starving held these in their hands in their medicine pouches and carried them. I was just like, oh my gosh, I burst into tears. I had to walk out of the room. 
A few of us did, actually. It was kind of too much at once. In the end, he said, I think I found the people I'm going to send the corn back with. So I called some of my leadership from the Onondaga Nation to tell them this big thing is happening. And we're going to have to have ceremony to welcome them back there because they're carrying this energy and we don't know what kind of energy that may be, good or bad, you know, depending on what the people went through. So we loaded them up into the car. We stacked all the jars on top of the jars to floor to ceiling. And we brought them back home and we had ceremony for them. And we've been caring for that collection and growing it out. We're trying to keep it as a living library where it's not a display. It's not something that's hidden in the dark. It's growing, it's getting to people's hands. We're rematriating a lot of those seeds back to nations where they've been separated for many generations. It's intense labor and a lot of love and work, but it's rewarding because to see the connection that people are making with those seeds is not even something I can put into words. So we thought we were finished. It took three years of sorting those all out and cleaning them up. And we found out there was a woman that had the other half of the collection. She's elderly now and can't really grow corn anymore. And she and I had become friends and she gifted me the other half to the collection. She felt like in her lifetime, she wanted to see it be back as one. So we just got started on that. So I don't know how long that's gonna take me. <laughs> Depends on how much help I have because her half is actually more than half. I would say it's probably two thirds. <laughs> There's so many seeds there, it's overwhelming. And every time we build another shelf there, it's like more seeds show up. For those accustomed to a couple of different variations of white, silver, and yellow corn at the local supermarket or roadside stand, the selection at the nation's farm is almost incomprehensible. Now that we have sorted, there's uh, 1,272 varieties of corn. There's over 500 varieties of beans and that's just what I already sorted through. That doesn't include whatever's in this second half. And some jars contained more than the seeds themselves. Oh yeah, he kept this really amazing, it was a system, it was like seed code talking. All these little letters and numbers and I had no idea what it was, but he had a way of keeping track of who grew it, where, what year, what bioregion, you know, what state. So it was pretty cool to see, like, she cracked the code if I didn't meet her. Oh, well, let me explain to you what all these letters and numbers mean. So now I can look at the things and translate what he meant when he jotted those notes. So it's pretty neat because some of the jars, he would say that as he was working on the seeds, the corn would deliver a message to him and he would jot it down like a little fortune cookie and fold it up and put it in the seed jar. So sometimes I open up the seeds and in the middle there's these little pieces of paper with these really profound thoughts, you know, that I don't know where they come from, but it's, it's very magical. When you read one, you're just like, whoa, you know, because it's, it's really strong. So, yeah, I try to get young people to help me do this so that people will be learning it and keep it going forward. 
And then I had indigenous students at Syracuse University and over at SUNY ESF. They didn't have any connection to their home community because they're so far away. So we used to invite them out to the farm and I had people come and help me with the seeds that way. Angela's work to bridge cultural divides for indigenous students had a direct influence on SU doctoral student Ethan Tayo. I was creating this project, a series of events centered around our moon cycle. In a sense, to kind of integrate both the academic calendar year and then our traditional calendar year. That way I could find ways to help Indigenous students kind of be more connected to our ways back home. I read a bunch of articles from other Indigenous people about how that disconnect happens. And because I was moved around all this time, I never really had like a grounded sense or like a foundation back home. So like I would acclimate really easily. I had no issue. But I know a lot of students did, and, and I did see a lot of students leave because they miss home. They miss their people and they miss their stuff. We were so isolated away from everything, and half the students were off campus, the other half were isolated. And so I was trying to find this avenue where we could reconnect both <laughs> virtually and physically, while also connecting community members in. Like, so other people who are doing these huge projects, like Ganadigan uh, and the White Corn Project, or like Angela Ferguson and the Nation Farm. And I had been working with friends who were working there at the time in the sustainability department. So it was brand new. I had always wanted a garden there because it's, it's a play on the fact that it used to be a farm before South Campus existed. They were working a lot with like the climate change gardens. They had some trees, they had some beds that they were doing. But I wanted to get Three Sisters in there because what's more meaningful and impactful than lip service is actually given us back a part of our land and to allow us to return our seeds to that land. This idea of using the university resources, their administrative power to get things done, um, but also in a way that they understand the impact and they focus on this relationship that they're building and really establishing this physical change to campus that is gonna continue. Three Sisters Garden, traditionally corn, beans, and squash, um, were the traditional crops that Haudenosaunee grew. We were able to sustain ourselves off of that for all the way back to now. Um, and we continue to do the practice because it is such a sustainable practice as an agricultural method, but also cultural and economical and just nutritional. Corn, beans, and squash, they work symbiotically together. The corn acts as a support system. So the corn always rises up first, followed by the beans. And what the beans do is they actually help fix the nitrogen so that the corn can grow better. And they also help support the corn by wrapping around them. And so they're really cool to see them grow together. And then the squash helps with more natural pest control, kind of gives it a blanket so that weeds don't grow up and it just looks good together. And these are traditionally grown in mounds. They're grown close together in mounds rather than rows. And there's some campuses that are doing the Three Sisters Garden in rows and it's, <laughs> I gotta reach out to them in a proactive way that like helps them understand why we do things we do. And so that's what this garden kind of became. I didn't expect a lot of people to want to watch us planting corn, but then <laughs> Pete Sala figured out about it and it blew up. And we had sustainability management together, we had Hendrix, we had Falk, we had a lot of different departments. The administration, Chancellor was there, the Ondaga Nation, Chiefs, Clan Mothers, uh, the farm worker. So it really, it grew way beyond what I thought it would be. Once the Chancellor was on board, Pete was like, we need to get this garden looking good. 
And so not only was I able to kind of give back to the garden for all the work and stuff that they helped me with, but I was also able to add value to the garden as a space that they wanted to use as a teaching environment, but also pay acknowledgement to the land and to the food and seeds that used to exist here. Amid the many challenges presented by the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, in 2020, Angela issued herself a personal test. Yeah, I wanted to see how long could I go without literally buying anything. Can I live sovereign, really? Can, how long can I do that? And it was like, I think almost 14 weeks before I ever went to a store for anything, even water and you name it, because I had already put food away. And actually the only reason I went is because the kids were pressuring me. My grandchildren were like, can we please get McDonald's? <laughs> but I thought you survived this long, so okay, yes. But it was just funny. They were kind of grumbling that I was making them eat traditional food for so long. <laughs> but we could do it if we had to. And that's what I was trying to show them. Like, this is what survival means. They really didn't complain until they seen other kids starting to be able to go back out and do things, because it was really a scary time. But I know that I could have gone longer. I have enough food in my own personal home for at least three years. And for my nation, we have at least four now. So I'm gonna have to start putting some more food away at my house to catch up, yeah. Usually every couple of years, I'll have my own garden so that um, I can put more food away and rotate the older, the older stuff out and plant that. Angela stresses the value of the farm to the Onondaga and the value of the crew to the farm. Oh yes, it's a wonderful crew. I mean, that's what it takes. The reason why we're called a crew and not just a farm is because it takes a crew of people to all work collectively together. There's no hierarchy really. None of us expect each other to do something we ourselves wouldn't do. And when one is down, the other picks up where you left off. So it's been really successful because, you know, not everybody in a community is always the best of friends or whatever, but it's teaching people how to resolve conflict, overcome challenges, share in the joy. You know, sometimes we grumble all weed pulling season, but then when it's harvest time, we forgot all about that. You know, our hunting and fishing guys, you know, I can visibly see when they are handing out all the, the meat and the fish and everything to the community members, they get so much thankfulness and gratitude and there's pride in the elders saying, I'm so proud of you guys. You know, that's what we need is that positive reinforcement to bring it back into our lives. And that's kind of what the farm is about. It originally started out as just an elder's garden. I really wanted to envision that we could have food for all the people and start putting food away. So uh, I put a little proposal together and um, presented it to our council of chiefs. And in 2015, they said, okay, we'll let you try that out. You know, I had a small crew in the beginning and each year we expanded to something else and added more things in there. Like now we gather medicines and nuts and we do a lot of foraging. They want us to start learning how to use dry storage or dehydration for meat so that we wouldn't have to rely on refrigeration. So that's something I'm gonna work on. Whatever they suggest, you know, we usually give it a whirl and um, it just adds to our cache of food for the people. 
it's been positive for the community, but it's also been positive for the workers. Because even if they're not going to make a career out of it, now they know they could teach their own family how to do that. And that revival of agriculture is so um, important. The food that we grow, it's for the entire community. So we do giveaways. It's available 24-7. If someone needs something just because they have no food, we've done care packages. Like, we don't want anyone to ever not have food. Or even if they just feel like saying, I feel like making corn soup. I'm going to go up there and get some corn. You know, everything's right there for you. It's in storage for anybody's use, and there's no expectation. You're, the investment is in the workers, and the food is all free. And that's, uh, people have been very, you know, it's almost like, wait, what's the catch? Why do I get this? You know, and it's like, there's no catch. It's for you. That's what we're doing. We're lucky people don't realize that a lot of farmers that are in big agriculture don't have that same luxury as us to do seed keeping, like to carry that for the next growing season. That's just been a part of who we are. We're not just taking, we're taking those seeds for the next seven generations because somebody did that for us. But during the pandemic, I actually saw farmers around me. I'm like, where's all their corn? Why didn't you guys plant? And they were telling me that the seed distributors were going through their list, trying to see who was the most valuable customers that we really need to keep, because the rest of them we're not gonna give seeds to. And a lot of farmers were put under, and you see they're out of business now. And it was kind of sad. I was like, I can't believe your destiny lies in somebody else's hands. And that to us is what sovereignty is, is that you're feeding yourself. You're taking care of the land around you. You're taking care of your own family. You're governing yourself. You're speaking your language. You're continuing on your culture, your ceremonies. All of those things are involved in sovereignty. So you can't have one thing without the other because all of the seeds and the foods, that all plays into our ceremonial cycle. And in order to have those, you need to have the language in order to have the ceremony. So it all ties back somehow. And I'm thankful that we still have that alive and well in our Haudenosaunee Confederacy and, and in our Onondaga Nation. As leader of the Onondaga Nation farm crew, Angela takes a cue from one of spring's first bloomers. Strawberries translates in the language to the leader of the plants. It doesn't mean that there's a hierarchy. It means that it's the first one. You know, usually a leader has to be the first person to say, okay, I'm willing to dive in first, right? And so the strawberry is very sacred to us. And that's our first that we get to have. And when I started the farm in 2015, I went around the village and I dug up little strawberry plants. I didn't have a machine or anything. I just used a hoe. I dug up the dirt the old way. <laughs> I just scratched maybe two inches at the top of the dirt. And I transferred those wild strawberries to put them in the garden up at the farm because I thought if I bring these here, the leader, the rest will follow. And sure enough, it did because the next year we had the corn and the beans and the squash and it all just came to life just by bringing the strawberries up there. So that was the energy. I transplanted them into the ground there and watered them every day and it worked because that's their power. You know, it was like, come on guys, follow me. And it was really neat to watch how everything evolved after those strawberries were there first. So I felt like we had to pay respects to the leader of the plants and that's what we did.
The Land You're On is a production of Access Audio, a storytelling initiative of the Special Collections Research Center at the Syracuse University Libraries. Produced by Brett Barry, Bianca Kayela Breed, Neil Pellis, and Jim O'Connor. Post-production by Silver Hollow Audio. The Land You're On is distributed by WAER Podcasts, available at WAER.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Production help for The Land You're On from Cal Doherty and Kevin Claus. For further information, reading, and educational resources, visit The Land You're On Research Guide, available at soundbeat.org.